Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. John Gere crushed it. Good work. Rubik's Cube master and scripture reader extraordinaire. Thank you for reading that. Well, um, good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're looking at uh, this great passage in Genesis 4 uh, this morning, and I want to um, set it up this way. <clears throat> A number of years ago, when uh, my family when we were living in Knoxville, my wife went on, was running errands by herself and went to the Disney store. We had a Disney store in the mall. It was a, it was a store that was just devoted to like Disney toys and Disney swag. And uh, so she went in there and as she walks into the store, one of the employees who's dressed up as a pirate comes up to Catherine, my wife, and says, ahoy matey, welcome to your adventure. Uh, let me know if you need any help finding hidden treasure. And Catherine, um, you know, smiles and appreciates how committed this employee was to this character and just went for it. And so she's like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm great. And just, you know, went about her business shopping and kind of was meandering through the store. And she gets over to like the Star Wars section. And another employee comes up who's dressed in different garb, comes up and says, excuse me, but can I help you find the force? If you want the force to be with you, how can I help you? And Catherine's like, you know, getting mildly annoyed at this point, but still appreciative. Thank you. Know, thank you. No, I'm great. I'll just figure it out on my own. She's walking around the store and uh, eventually gets to the Moana section. And a third employee comes up and says, are you looking for the heart of Tefiti? And Catherine's like, you know, she's kind and smiles. And on the inside, she's like, stop. Y'all are killing me. And, and the reason is, 
She's not looking for the heart of Tafiti. She's in a mall looking for a birthday present. This is, you know, there's nothing to do with Tafiti or hidden treasure. But, but you know, my point is, as uh, popular and as entertaining and as fun as those stories are, in that moment of her actual lived life, these stories are irrelevant. I'm not interested in Star Wars right now. I just need some stuff for my, you know, whatever, whoever she's getting a birthday present for. This summer, we are looking at the Bible's most popular stories, what we're calling the Bible's greatest hits, the, the, the stories in the Bible that are the most well-known, the most popular, the, the most uh, entertaining, as it were. And, and you, you come to church or you, you hear these stories, and it's easy to think, okay, these stories, for as popular as they are, for maybe as whatever entertainment values they have, they don't really intersect with my actual life. Like, what does Noah and the ark have to do with my depression or my anxiety, my financial struggles? Okay, David and Goliath, fun story, but how in the world does that connect with my grief? How does that connect with my fear over uh, crime rising in the city? These stories, for as fun as they are, it, they can feel totally disconnected, and we don't really even know what to do with them. But my, my, my hope is that as we go through these stories this summer, that you'll begin to see these are not just disconnected fairy tales with a nice little moral lesson for the kiddies, but that these stories in many ways are, are telling our stories. These stories are helping us understand our own. And so we come to the next story in kind of the greatest hits catalog, the story of uh, Cain and Abel. And this is a masterful story, amazing story, because what it does is it, is it highlights why our lives are so frustrating, why our lives are not the way that they're supposed to be, why, why we experience friction and frustration and pain and, and why, why things feel so messy. But what's so fascinating about the story is that the, it shows you that the reason why life is so hard and messy and frustrating, it's, it's not obvious. It's, a t it's totally hidden. And the solution to it, the, the hope, the remedy for the problem, isn't obvious either. But we're going to see both of these kind of as we pull them out. So that's what I want to do. I want to look at both of these big ideas. What is, what is the hidden threat? And what is the hidden remedy? The hidden threat, hidden remedy. First, uh, what is the hidden threat? And to get at that, we need to take a closer look at the story. So let's look at it. Uh, the story is pretty, um, I mean, it's a sad story. It's a, it's a dark story, but it's, it's fairly simple. You have Cain who kills his younger brother, Abel. Simple plot. And, but, but at least, you know, you're four chapters into the Bible and you're already experiencing the murder, the first murder, right at the beginning, four chapters in, which at least shows you, even just from a, you know, high level, that the Bible's not afraid of addressing serious and heavy subject matter. First murder, four chapters in. But why, though? Why does Cain kill his brother? What prompts this uh, act of violence? Well, look a little closer. Okay, in verse 1, Eve gives birth to her firstborn son, Cain, and she cries out with joy. You see it there? I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She's like this, 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 she just explodes with excitement. Got a baby. God helped me. And then a little while later in, in verse 2, it says she later gives birth to a second son, Abel. And look at what she says when he's born. Nothing. 
all the emphasis is on Cain. He's the one, you see, you see, you see this favoritism starting to develop. All the emphasis is on Cain and um, none really towards Abel. And if that wasn't obvious, just look at their names. In Hebrew, the word Cain means productive. It means fruitful. It means successful. This is a guy that can get stuff done. In fact, if you, if you go back one chapter in Genesis chapter 3, remember God cursed the ground, and he said the ground now is going to be full of thorns and thistles, and it's going to be frustrating. You're going to sweat. You're going to cut your hand, and it's going to be really hard to, like, make the ground do stuff. But look, look at verse uh, 2. Cain works the ground. He brings out fruit and vegetables. It's like he's pushing back the curse. That's how gifted and successful and fruitful he is. So that's what Cain means. Cain means productive. You know what Abel means in Hebrew? Vapor. You ever seen anybody uh, vaping? You know, they're ripping a jewel or whatever, and they you know, blow out this uh, mega cloud of white vapor, and it just looks so thick and heavy, and then whew, it just, it's gone in two seconds. It just disappears. Just it, that's what Abel means. Abel means weightless, which is a, which is a metaphor for insignificance. So you've got one son named successful, you've got another son named insignificance, and now you see why this family needs therapy. You've, you've, got, uh, you've got one kid who's the golden child, he's the, he's the favorite, he's the MVP, he's the captain of the football team, everyone loves Cain, Abel's the forgotten one, he's the inferior one, he's, he gets the uh, participation trophies. He, he, he's, he's left out, and that's the dynamic. That's how they live their lives until you get to this fateful day when both of them bring an offering, bring a sacrifice before the Lord. They each bring something from their own kind of lanes, their own field of work, and they bring this offering. And as you can see, and because Cain's offering, shock, there's this plot twist, because Cain's offering gets rejected. And God accepts and he has favor for Abel's offering. So you got the nobody who gets accepted, and you got the somebody who gets rejected. And what is Cain's response? Look at verse 5. It says, Cain was very angry and his face fell, which is to say that he rages and he's depressed. He has this giant reaction inside of him, which means... It shows you for the first time in his life, Cain was not the chosen one. He's not in the spotlight. He's not the golden child. He doesn't get the, you know, the first place prize. And he has a internal meltdown. And that shows you, that big of a reaction shows you that his goodness, his status, his place was central to his identity. It had become core to how he thought about himself. In fact, that's a little window into why his offering wasn't even accepted in the first place, because his offering wasn't made in faith, trusting God as a, as a sacrifice and devotion to God. It was to impress God. He's thought his entire life, I'm impressive. I'm pretty awesome. Of course, whatever I bring to God, he's going to love because I'm awesome. 
And so he brings this offering with this sense of entitlement. Of course I deserve this, and of course God's going to be impressed with this. And when God isn't, Cain has a meltdown. Now you hit a pause right there. Before Cain goes off and does bad stuff, at this point in the story, what do we know about Cain? He's not a monster. He's not a terrorist. He's not in a biker gang. He's, he's a good guy. He's successful. He's well-liked. He's religious. He, he's, uh, he's the opposite of needy. He's put together. And what I want you to see is that right there is why his life really starts to go off the rails. It is not because of his badness. He has no badness. He's doing everything right. His problem is his goodness. His problem is his confidence in his goodness. That's why his whole life really starts to get derailed. I mean, just think about this. If I were to ask you this question, rhetorically speaking, in your own head, um, what would you say is the biggest and most dangerous moral flaw? Or to put it in, in Bible language, what is, what is the biggest sin? What's the most dangerous sin? Most people in their minds would go towards uh, real splashy things, obvious things, murder, abuse, mass shooting, uh, hate crimes, things like this. And of course, those things are awful and horrific and destructive and terrible. But what I want you to see from the story is that it, it's not the big, splashy, obvious sin that is the most dangerous. It's actually the most dangerous sin is, is so much more subtle, so much harder to see. It's, it's our confidence in our own goodness. And in fact, that's why when God confronts Cain as he's having this you know, uh, meltdown. He uses this amazing imagery. L look at verse 7. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. That word crouch is, is a word that's used uh, almost exclusively to refer to tigers and lions. I don't know if you've seen these videos. I feel like I've seen different versions of them, like on Instagram reels or whatever, where it's a, it's a, it's a video taking place at a zoo. So you've got a parent who's filming their kid, and, and the kid is, has their back up against the glass. And behind the glass is like the tiger exhibit. And so from the tiger's perspective, it sees a kid or somebody with their back turned, and so they think this is a, a vulnerable, unaware, uns, you know, unsuspecting prey. And so the crouch gets, you know, the, the tiger gets low and crouches and starts slowly creeping towards the glass and everybody in the crowd is getting, you know, excited. It's, you know, it's coming, it's coming towards us. And the kid's just standing there and the, and the tiger's getting closer and closer. And then at the last minute jumps and hits the glass and everybody on their side cheers and kind of nervously laughs as well of just like, thank you glass for not breaking because that would have been bad. But, but here's the, here's the thing. Why is the tiger crouching? I mean, why, why do predators uh, get low to the ground, moving towards their, their, uh, their prey. It's, it's so that they won't be seen. It's so that they're out of the field of vision. Crouching tiger, hidden dragon. That's the, that's the idea. When you're least expecting it, least suspecting it, that's when the 
enemy, that's when the threat uh, pounces. And so what I want you to see from the story and, and, and God's language here is that the most dangerous and destructive parts about us are not the things that are the most obvious. You know, you look at your life and you think, okay, porn addiction, my temper, my greed, whatever, take your pick. Those things, yeah, of course, destructive, dangerous, terrible, but my guess is you're aware of them. You know when you've caved into temptation. You know when you've acted like a jerk because the person that felt it is sitting there crying, looking at you, telling you that, that you hurt them. But my guess is you don't always see it when you have confidence in your goodness. It's crouching. It's in the shadows. You, you don't even know that it's happening. Every now and, the, and Every now and then you might be able to see it out of the corner of your eye meaning you'll think things or you'll say things out loud that give you an indication that there's a tiger present. And it may be things like this. When you say, this is how God repays me? After all I do for him? After all I've done, this is what I get? Or you say things like, I deserve better than this. I deserve a better life than this. Or it's when you look at people or look at groups of people and you just kind of roll your eyes at them and think, oh my goodness, I would never do what they do. Those people are the worst. And you hear that and you think, okay, that's the most dangerous thing? That? Why? Why is that the thing that really has the power to destroy us? Let me, let me give you two reasons, and you see them both in this passage. The first is that, that that heart disposition, confidence in your own goodness, it severs your relationship with God. just does. L- look at verse um, 7 and 9. There are two different times God pursues Cain. He approaches him. He engages with him, and he invites him to change his attitude. And each time, Cain refuses he doubles down. He resists. He, 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 he digs his heels in and says, no, I am the right kind of person. This is who I am. I'm the superior one. And he refuses to budge. And so in the end, rather than humbling himself and actually connecting with God, look at, look at the very last verse, 16. It says, then, God, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He just cuts off his relationship with God. And according to the Bible, No human being can be fully human apart from God. It's like cutting yourself off from oxygen. It's like cutting your own throat. You're you're, you're cutting yourself off from the very thing that you need for life and for joy and for hope and for meaning in the world. That's what Cain does. This refusal to think about himself in any other way, confidence in his goodness, leads him to severing his relationship with God. And secondly... Confidence in his own goodness leads him to severing his relationship with other people. He, God chooses his brother's offering over his, and so he has this identity crisis. And he had two choices. He could have either said, wow, okay, I need to think about myself very differently. Maybe I'm not as amazing and awesome as I thought I was. He could have changed the way that he understood his identity, or... He could eliminate any threat that was threatening his identity. And he chose option B, and he kills his brother. 
But what I want you to see is that that is the move inside of us. Anytime our identity is threatened, the move inside of us is we either have to change our identity, change the way we understand ourselves, or we have to eliminate the other person. In fact, you know, this is, this is the engine behind the entire plot of Harry Potter in the magical community. You have um, pure bloods and you have mixed bloods, half bloods, uh, mud bloods. These are, these are wizards who are either from pure blood wizarding families or these are wizarding families that have, have uh, mixed with muggles, with people that don't have any wizarding magical power at all. And so you've got two different types of people in the wizarding community, pure bloods or half bloods. And the pure blood families, families like the Gaunts or the Malfoys, these, these families that are pure-blooded, and that is so central to how they understand themselves that anybody else who's not like us, they, they feel embarrassed by, they feel like they're disgusting, they feel like they're a threat. And so, of course, this becomes this giant campaign to get rid of them. And, of course, Voldemort is leading the charge, even though he's not even full-blood, which is psychologically very interesting. But he's, he's, he's this half-blood person that's, that leads this genocidal campaign to get rid of all the half-bloods, but that's the idea. We've got to get rid of people that threaten our identity. Now, you hear this story, Cain and Abel, you hear about Harry Potter, and you think, well, okay, that's a little intense. I'm not doing that. And we probably aren't, but in our own sophisticated modern ways, we're eliminating people. And the way that we eliminate people now is that we just get them beneath us so that we can dismiss them. If we can just get them beneath us, then that gives us enough reason to effectively eliminate them. So here's what this might look like. If, you, <clears throat> if your identity is wrapped up in your appearance, if what you appear to the world, if what you look like, if that is, if that, if that is something that is, that, you are, that is a real important, deeply held bedrock identity value for you, you'll be threatened by other people that are attractive and you'll have to find a way to get them beneath you. And the way that we tend to do it is we gossip about them. Or we see what they posted online and we say, oh my goodness, I would never do that. Talk about them behind their back, behind to other people. And it's, it, all of these are just ways to get them beneath us so that we feel superior and we can not take them seriously. Or if, you're, if your identity is rooted in your career, and success, then other successful people will threaten you. And you will hate it when they're recognized, you'll hate it when they're promoted, and you'll have to find some way to get them beneath you. And so you'll find something, you'll just scan, look at their life, oh my gosh, have you, have you seen their kids? Their kids are crazy. Or, oh my word, did you hear about how much money they spent on that car? Wow. Or, oh my, look at their house. That is, that is so gaudy. We find these things. We find something about them that we can press them down and effectively eliminate them. And so here's the question. Who in your life are you trying to eliminate by making them feel inferior to you or by you feeling superior to them? Here's what's so dangerous about this. 
we don't even know we're doing it. It's so subconscious, it's so natural, it's, it's just, it's always lurking in the shadows. And that's why the story is here. That's why the story is showing us the most dangerous threat to us we don't even see. Because if that keeps going unchecked, it has the potential to wreck our relationship with God and to wreck our relationship with other people. So, what do we do? What do we do with these tigers that are just hiding in the shadows waiting to devour us and they're inside of us? What do we do? Well, I want to look at the, at the hidden remedy because the remedy, just like the threat, is uh, it's not obvious. So let's look at it. Look at, look at what God does to uh, Cain's uh, resistance, to Cain's violence. What does God do? It's fascinating. Verse 10, God comes to him and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, which is a way to say you've shed his blood, his blood is spilt on the ground, and it's, and it's crying out for a response. Anytime blood is shed, that's what it does. It cries out for justice. It cries out to say, hey, this was not okay. Somebody needs to do something about this. And so God says, I hear his blood crying out for justice, and I'm going to give it. And so God responds, and he brings justice. In verse 11, he curses Cain. And then in verse 12, he says, okay, Cain, you're no longer going to be productive and fruitful and awesome. You're going to be a wanderer. You're going to be a, just a fugitive that just is floating around. You're, going to, you're not going to be in the spotlight getting all the press, getting all the attention anymore. I'm going to bring you down to the bottom rung. Justice. And then listen to this. Look at verse 13. Cain says, okay, that is way more than I can bear. You've taken away everything from me, and they're going to kill me. I'm vulnerable out there. If I'm just out there wandering around, somebody's going to kill me. And uh, notice what God says. He doesn't say, well, you know what? Too bad. You should have thought about that before you killed your brother. Look at what he says, verse 15. He says, if anyone tries to kill you, I'll bring sevenfold vengeance on them. And he puts this mark on Cain, which is really confusing and weird. None of the scholars really even know what that means. But what we know is it's not a mark of shame, it's like, a, like a scarlet letter that everybody looks at how terrible he is. It's a mark of protection. He's preserving Cain's life. He's giving him mercy as he's crying out for it. And you hear this and you think, whoa, 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 what, what is happening right now? Which side is God on? Is he on Cain's side or is he on Abel's side? Because you've got Abel, who's this innocent sufferer, and he's crying out for justice. And God says, I hear that. Yes, I will grant that. And you've got Cain, who's a guilty murderer, and he's crying out for mercy. And God says, I hear that, and I will grant that. Yes. How can God do both? How can God acquit and convict? How can God give mercy and justice in the same moment. It's hidden. It's not obvious. And in fact, it's not obvious for centuries. This whole weird paradox and tension doesn't become resolved and become clear until centuries later. There's a, there's a book in the New Testament called the book of Hebrews. And the author of the book of Hebrews does something fascinating. They, they take this story Cain and Abel, and they explicitly connected to Jesus. 
They explicitly connect it to the person and work of Jesus. I put it in the front of your bulletin, but I'll just read it. This is Hebrews 12, verse 24. They write that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Just like Abel's blood was shed and it's crying out for something, Jesus' blood was shed and it's crying out for something, but it's crying out for something better. What is that? It at least shows you that Jesus is the ultimate Abel. Jesus is the truer and he's the better Abel. Because think about Abel. Just like Abel, Jesus was innocent, did nothing wrong, completely sinless. He perfectly loved God, perfectly loved his neighbor. And yet, just like Abel, he was seen in the eyes of the world as weak, as inferior, as despised, poor. And yet, this was God's chosen one. He looked upon Jesus with favor and with delight. And just like Abel, the world pounced on him and, and murdered him and shed his blood. And here is his blood, and it's crying out for something better than whatever Abel's blood cried out for. Because Jesus' blood isn't just crying out for justice. It's crying out for both justice and mercy. You think, well, how does that make any sense? Well, think about it like this. Let's say somebody shows up to court uh, because they're guilty, they've committed a crime, and they're, they're in their hearing, and they've, they've, uh, they've they burned down somebody else's house, and they owe them a million dollars in damages, and they can't pay it. And so they're crying out for mercy, oh, my, please don't make me pay for this. And the judge says, well, you've got to pay for this, otherwise you're going to go to jail. And you've got these people over here saying, yeah, they burned down my house. We have all, all of our resources were gone. We need this money. Justice, mercy, what do we do? And so the judge sitting there in his little judge chair and stands up and unzips his robe and steps down from the platform and comes down to the ground and pulls out a checkbook from his back pocket, writes a million-dollar check from his own personal account, takes the check, puts it on the table, goes back up into the stand, puts the robe back on, sits down, says, well, I see that the fine has been paid. Justice has been served. You are free to leave. What just happened? Justice or mercy? Yes. In that moment, justice is being served. The damages are being paid for, but they're being paid for at the expense of the judge. The judge is assuming responsibility for something he didn't do so that the one who is guilty can receive mercy and can go free. Jesus' blood shed on the cross shows you both of those things are happening in the same moment. Justice is being doled out. His blood is being shed. He's paying the fine. He's absorbing the expense from his, his own resources so that justice would be served and that the guilty could go free. Mercy, justice in the same moment. That's what his blood is crying out for. And when you hear that blood message, when you receive that by faith, do you know what that does? That is the only thing that neutralizes that threat inside of you. Our confidence in our, in our own goodness, the only thing that can dissolve that, that can undo that, is the gospel itself. Because when you look at the cross, when you look at the gospel, and it tells you, okay, I was that 
I was that dangerous, I was that sinful that it took no less than God to pay for my debt. That's how far off, that's how bad off I was. That humbles you, that loosens your confidence in your own goodness. You can't look at the cross and believe in the gospel and think you're this amazing, awesome person that God is entitled to blessing because of how awesome and impressive you are. What the cross does is it gives you the ability, really for the first time, to be able to see through your own goodness, to see that even the best things that you do are shot through with really ugly, yucky motives. The best things you do, your care for the poor, your generosity, your love for the city, your amazing parenting, your, your preaching, your, your Bible reading, your prayer, all good things, and yet we know deep down we often do these things because we want to feel good about ourselves. We want other people to see us as being good. We want to impress God in some way. We know even the best things about us have yucky, bad stuff inside of them. It gives you the ability, it, it, it loosens your confidence in your own goodness. And yet, the flip side is also true. It deepens your confidence in God's goodness. Because while the gospel humbles you, it doesn't shame you. Because when you also look at the cross, it tells you that you are that treasured, that loved, that valued, that God was willing to pay this penalty for you. And when you know that you are loved and treasured, that protects you from running to shame. It undoes the superiority thing inside of us, and it undoes the inferiority thing inside of us. What it does is it takes your eyes off of you for the first time. And people no longer become competition. People no longer become threats. They become people to love because your eyes are actually beginning to be fixated on something outside of yourself. The goodness, the holiness, the glory, the beauty, the wisdom of God himself. Only the gospel has the power to loosen your confidence in how awesome you are and to actually deepen your confidence in how good God is. So, the invitation for you this morning from this passage is to look to the truer and the better Abel, whose blood was shed on your behalf, and it cries out for mercy, and it cries out for your acquittal, and it also cries out for justice to be done in the same moment. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to really transform you into the kind of person that you were created to be, someone who loves God and loves others from this disposition of wonder and humility. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the story. Thank you for the way that it shows us clearly what is uh, a threat lurking inside of us, inside of all of our hearts continually. And I pray that you would also give us the eyes to see not just the threats, but also to see Jesus, this non-obvious solution. The cross feels so uh, offensive at times. It feels confusing at times. It's hidden from us how beautiful and wise it truly is, and yet use it to break through our clouded vision to see the wonder and the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.